Imagine hiking in a new country and coming across one of the most venomous snakes and realizing that if you were to get bit, there would be no anti-venom available at all. You would be dead, quite literally. This is just one of the light bulb moments global health professor Dr. Eric Wetzel strives to bring his students each year. He says that he quote-unquote wants to kind of knock his students off the rails of their lives through immersion experiences in places like Peru and Belize. This conversation was so interesting to me because it meanders through the topics of parasitology and its intersection with global health. From there, we talk about neglected tropical diseases, what they are, and why they're called neglected tropical diseases. And then from there, we dive into student immersions, light bulb moments where students finally start to realize and understand what it means to not have the same health access they might have in the States, what it means to not have clean water, what living might be like in an impoverished community. The way that Dr. Wetzel teaches might be slightly unorthodox, but I believe that it's 100% effective. Because if you're like me, reading from a textbook can only do so much. But when you're in it, you never forget. Before we dive in, here's a little bit about Dr. Eric Wetzel. Dr. Wetzel is a professor of biology at Wabash College in Indiana. He's the director of the Wabash Global Health Initiative. Dr. Wetzel was an undergraduate at Millersville University in Pennsylvania, where he grew up. He then went to North Carolina, where he did his master's and PhD work at Wake Forest University. After teaching at Wake Forest University for one and a half years, he joined the Wabash faculty in 1996. His teaching and research are centered on the field of invertebrate zoology, which are animals without backbones, with particular interest in wormy kinds of parasites. More specifically, his research examines the ecology of parasites of wild host animals such as fish, frogs, mollusks, and crayfish. It's no surprise then that Dr. Wetzel's work involves both field and laboratory work. He has led course-related immersion trips to the Gulf Coast, to the coral reefs of Jamaica and Belize, and to the Amazonian rainforest of Peru. Dr. Wetzel is the director of the Wabash Global Health Initiative, which works through education, investigation, and service to impact students and people in underserved communities all around the world. International work of the Wabash Global Health Initiative currently focuses on collaborations in the South American country of Peru with work in rainforests, Andean, and coastal regions. I am so excited for you guys to hear this episode. My name is Hethel Baman, and this is the Global Health Pursuit. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing so good. You know, it's so funny. Before we started 
recording, I realized that I was drinking out of a mug that had an Indiana logo on it. And <laughs> I'm not sponsored, but this is by a company called Mud Love. And they, they do a lot of work around clean water. And that's cool. Yeah, I just... There you go. It's just so funny. I was like, wow, okay, great. This is like serendipitous. Meant to be. There you go. <laughs> awesome. So Eric, I'm so excited for you to be on the show. First questions first. I always love asking my guests what their story is. You can go as far back as you want, but this is your stage. Yeah. Well, gosh, and thanks for having me. I'm just... I'm super thankful for the, for this connection. And, you know, I think that you, you know, I think, I think ultimately this was, you know, through LinkedIn and, and yeah. Katie Barrick with hands on Peru and not even directly through her. It was just kind of, I was looking her up and, and uh, her cool organization and, and kind of ran across your name and then the podcast and all that. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So in terms of me, I'm originally from Pennsylvania. Oh my gosh. And I'm in Pennsylvania. Look That's at that. Right. <laughs> yeah, not too far away. I don't think from where you're at. Um, grew up in South Central Pennsylvania, outside of Harrisburg. I mean, kind of lived in the burbs, you know, in, in the Harrisburg, burbs. and 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 did all of that stuff. Grew up kind of liking to do. I think this pieces into it later on, you know, in some ways that you know, like being outside and doing what I would view as kind of normal kid stuff. That's kind of a pr privileged thing, but uh, normal okay. normal kid stuff, and and you know, hiking and. And we grew, we grew up doing a lot of like hunting and, and stuff like that. And, and later on, just kind of like roaming the, the woods and the, the, uh, Ooh, okay. and, and all that. So I think that that's kind of that. And along with a couple of people, you know, I think kind of got me just interested in, in biology and, and all that in general. So kind of did biology up, you know, through school and ended up going to a place called Millersville University, one of this part of the state school system. Division two school in, in Pennsylvania. And then I kind of worked for a Harrisburg area community college first and then went to Millersville for the last couple of years, met the woman who's now my wife and um, which is cool. And, and uh, yeah, so I, I ended up working for a guy um, doing kind of small mammal physiology, field mice outside, you know, live trapping yeah. these critters. And, and he had had a couple of, of former students go and work with a guy at, at Wake Forest University for graduate school. I thought that I wanted to go to grad school, do a master's degree, because basically I wanted to be like a field biologist with the Pennsylvania Game Commission, you know? So oh, I knew like you had to kind of have a master's to do that. And so that's really why I went to graduate school is more utilitarian that way. At the idea of being a professor or something like that, not at all on the Didn't on the cross your mind. No, I, <laughs> I knew nothing of that. So yeah, so kind of went to grad school and uh, I was on a teaching assistantship and ended up doing my, my master's and then staying there to do my PhD, switched labs. Students a lot of times ask me like how I got to work on kind of wormy kind of parasites and invertebrates and, you know, and things like that. And my, my kind of pat answer is like, it was just hanging out with the wrong crowd, really, you know? That is so funny. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of the friends you make in, in graduate school. And so a lot of the friends initially were working in a parasitology lab. So, uh, yeah. So and what's your doctorate in? Yeah, it's Wake's graduate program, at least at the main campus is not huge. So my, my degree is in biology, which mm. is kind of broad for a right. PhD, right? But yeah, so my work was more in ecological parasitology. So I'm kind of thinking about wormy kind of parasites. I worked on a couple of species of worms that live in the mouths of frogs. Oh God. Um, <laughs> that's super cool. And, uh, yeah. 
and have complex life cycles, which I think plays into, you know, a lot of the the other interests that we'll kind of unpack, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you got to do a lot of field work and and all that, and it's just complicated and, and, and complex. And so just, yeah, in a lot of ways, I think the way that I boil it down is that I'm interested in how these things just kind of get through the day. You know, they're no, they're no different than we are, right? In a lot of ways. So. Oh, <laughs> yep. wow. It almost feels like, you know, when you were talking about your childhood and how you'd like go out into the woods and stuff and just, mm-hmm. it was almost like you had that interest all way back then. You just didn't know what it would translate to. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think that, you know, I was kind of reflecting on this a little bit and, and, you know, there wasn't any, I wasn't a kid who like, oh my gosh, I'm just into ants, you know, or something <laughs> like that. Right? Like yeah. I was just interested in, I had field guides and, you know, like would, was interested in kind of the natural history side of it. And so yeah. like, but, but across the board. And so I, I see that kind of wide interest playing out now. And I think, you know, fast forward, I think that, you know, kind of interest in not just the kind of ecological parasitology, but also global public health stuff is, is kind of perfect for somebody who has really wide interest, right? Just because it's so multidisciplinary. Can you explain what parasitology is? Yeah, yeah. basically it's kind of study of organisms that, you know, use, there's, there's a huge, there's such a wide kind of discussion of like defining a parasite, right? And, and so these are organisms that, that from, from my perspective, right, are using another organism, right? And evading the immune defense system of another organism that it uses as both habitat and food, right? So there's lots of nuance to that. There's a, like, you know, first day of parasitology class, I hand out this big long list of here's all these (laughs) definitions of parasites. Memorize all of them. (laughs) No, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, and it's, and it's on a continuum of like, you know, metabolic dependence and Mm. the issue of whether they cause harm and whether you treat them as kind of individuals or populations really, you know, and that kind of stuff. But yeah. uh, So the, those kind of lists are always like a little bit in flux. That's true of things like neglected tropical disease and yeah. you know all that, right? But. Yeah. So we're going to get into all of that, but I want to I want to ask you about you. So you teach at Wabash College, and yeah. it's a small university. I want you to kind of go into what what brought you to teaching at that college, and what is it like there. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying this episode. And if you are, would you do me a tiny favor? Show me some love by doing one or more of these three things. A, click the support this podcast link in the description to donate a few dollars toward the production of this podcast. My dream is to do this full time and your support would mean the world. B, you can write me a review on Apple Podcasts and or rate me on Spotify to give me a boost in the algorithm. Or C, share this episode with someone who would love it just as much as you do. I truly and deeply appreciate you. Let's get back to the episode. Yeah, so Wabash is in, you know, West Central Indiana, a small private liberal arts college, one of the few remaining colleges that has all male students. So it's a single sex institution. It's just a few of those, at least on the, the 
the male student side, I guess, mm-hmm. there's more um, single sex institutions for women. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, you know, the short practical answer is they had a job and I needed one. So, <laughs> I that's applied. One. That's one, right? Uh, yeah, I applied, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was actually teaching at Wake Forest um, when I was finishing up my degree and then kind of extended. And there's just like a whole cool family story there in terms of expecting another child and, you know, and all that stuff. Yeah. I needed work. And so I was teaching at Wake Forest for, I've like ended up doing like a year and a half of kind of basically filling in for sabbatical, you know, replacements and stuff. And, and I taught there, I taught parasitology. I was, I taught, got to teach an invertebrate zoology course and kind of their intro kind of evolutionary ecological biology. And so then I saw the job ad actually at Wabash was for people who, somebody who does field work and who teaches in really basically the same kind of areas. Yeah. I was blessed to kind of be able to get that position. My PhD advisor, who he, he was so excited, right? Because I think in part because of the whole, you know, it's a small liberal arts place. It's the emphasis is on teaching mm-hmm. um, and research is important, but that's, you know, broadly defined. And I involve students in my lab and, and, and various projects, but it's not the kind of R1 kind of research pressure. Mm-hmm. And it, it ultimately doesn't matter what you do in the classroom, right? As long as you bring in research dollars and stuff like that. Right. That, anyways, that's probably a broad brush. I, I don't want us, I don't, I don't want either one is to get negative connotations nasty grams, and all you know, from people who are, Hey, uh, I teach. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not all. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> but absolutely our, our bread and butter. And I think that Wabash does an awesome job at this is, is that uh, our bread and butter is kind of faculty student interaction, right? And mm. what happens both inside and outside of the classroom. Um, and and I, I think the longer I've been here, 27 years. and And so I think, you know, a lot of it is the longer you go, it's, you learn more, that it's more about life lessons in a lot of ways, right? You know, whether guys uh, end up remembering, they're not going to remember all the details from my parasitology course or my invert course or whatever, right? Global health. But I think that a lot of it has to do with kind of like your perspective and the way that you look at the information and what you can do with it and your responsibility to do something with it, um, I think is, is a big part of it. So Teaching here is is uh, great. There's a lot of demands at small places, right? And so I kind of look back and sometimes I look at my day-to-day and what I'm doing. I'm just like, what was I hired to do? You know? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, you said something around, you know, we might not remember everything that you get taught in college. And it almost reminds me of, you know, I went to engineering school and I'm not... <laughs> I I barely remember all the formulas, but when I went to school for engineering, the thing that I took back, took away from that was I was taught how to think critically and ask the right questions Mm -hmm. and really dive into a problem and find a solution based off of that. And it's like, that's kind of like a high level thing, but it's, it's, it's taught through all of those courses of, okay, here's a problem, find a solution. In many different ways. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that our, you know, our, one of our mottos is like the first thing is think critically, which right. is every small place is going to say that. Right. right. Um, and so, but it, in part, they say it because it's also true. Right. And I think that, you know, for us, I think one of the things there is that like in terms of how to get guys to wrestle with kind of big, gnarly, multidisciplinary, um, yeah. interdisciplinary problems, right. And challenges. And, and then how do you not just think critically about them, but then 
you know, are things are kind of how do you act responsibly? How do right. you, you know, lead? How do you, how do you, and for me, and kind of thinking about global health and all that, we were talking a lot about thinking critically and leadership, right? right? And one of the other parts of our kind of mission is, is to live humanely. And so how do you, how do you balance those? It doesn't have to be a balance, right? Mm-hmm. But how do you think critically? How do you lead? How do you, how do we, you know, how do we help to educate young, in this case, young men to, to, to act in the world, be global citizens in a way that is humane. And, and that's, you know, there's no easy answer. It's, it's like the definition of a parasite, right? I mean, there's no, there's no cut and dried, not to make too strong of a connection there, but right. But there's no cut and dried, really simple definition or answer to that. Right. Now I know we've been kind of chatting a little bit about, you know, inserting the phrase global health and all of that in our conversation when you came to Wabash College and were asked to teach a course about parasitology, when was it that you thought to yourself, okay, I want to intersect the field of global health and how am I going to do that? How do those two connect for you? Yeah, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, I mean, I can think of specific years and dates right, on this, but which is less important maybe, but um, I, I think for me, because I, it, it, I had been at, here teaching parasitology for you know more than ten years at this at this this stage, and because of some other things going on, like in our own lives, our personal lives, and you know, and all that, that um, just kind of an intersection and kind of growing awareness of mm. of and heart for people who are excluded. Mm-hmm. and marginalized uh in a lot of ways and so there's that right and then and then teaching parasitology and and really for myself i think kind of you can't separate these two threads right there's streams that kind of flow together and mm-hmm. so how do you know where the which is one you know where the line uh, is mm-hmm. yeah but for me it was kind of a growing less of a i guess less of a satisfaction with saying Hey, here's the life cycle for malaria, for Plasmodium falciparum, and and other species of Plasmodium that cause malaria in the world. And at that time, it was you know a million kids, and most of them under the age of five. Most of them live in Africa, you know, are dying of malaria. And mm. and then we have a lot of students, especially in biology, who have interests in going on to med school and other kind of health professions. And so it was a little bit of like, okay, like go do good things. Right. You know, and just personally kind of getting less satisfied with that, I suppose. And which is still a good thing. I'm, I, and I still do that. Right. Um, but then kind of, kind of becoming more aware of, of just kind of the intersections with my own field, mm-hmm. which, which was always there and, uh, you know, and would talk about and kind of knew of, and you, you look at different parasitic diseases and the history of those and, this is always there, but, you know, right around the same time, there was kind of a growing interest in what is now well known as what are called neglected tropical diseases. Right. Mm -hmm. And and these are diseases, mostly they're wormy kind of, at least originally when they're, when when WHO kind of first came and and neglected tropical diseases kind of became a, became a, a thing. And there's kind of a whole history and story to that, but. Can I ask you a question that I'm a little bit. Yeah, sure. Curious about 
why is it called why are they called neglected tropical diseases yeah what is that why is that if you want to yeah you should you should get i mean it was just he's just like a total heavy hitter right i mean he's the man like a guy named dr peter hotez so hotez and other collaborators this is back in like 2005 right roughly is when i think it's 2005 around that time period when he originally created wrote the paper that kind of first named neglected tropical disease mm-hmm. and and part of the thing was that um, it was a little bit in response to the millennium development goals right and millennium development goal specifically number 6 which will, which looked at hiv tb malaria and then originally in the mdg language it was like and other diseases Right. I see. Now, what is in that phrase and other diseases, right, were what are now referred to for the most part as neglected tropical diseases, diseases that are neglected. And number one, it was neglected because of they, they oftentimes afflict neglected people. So mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a marginal. Okay. Okay. That report. makes sense. Mm-hmm. As well as, I mean, it's two sides of the same coin. It's also like neglected in terms of, in, in terms of funding. And all that kind of stuff, mm, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what Hotez, I've listened to him, you know, give talks on on this multiple times. That, you know, basically kind of saying, you know, didn't really have the kind of the elevator speech for a group of diseases that collectively had an impact on, you know, um, in global health. Or, you know, there's this big, there's this measure called da- the DALIs, right? The disability, disability adjusted life years, which is basically kind of a combination of mortality and morbidity, right? The okay. impact on people. And this is kind of like one of the main measures that, that is oftentimes used to assess kind of global impacts. And when you take a look at tuberculosis, malaria, HIV, AIDS, right? And then these other diseases, neglected tropical diseases, at least at the time, Right. This is, you know, again, you know, 2005, six, seven, whatever, um, that, that collectively those diseases had nearly the, they're in the same ballpark in terms of the impact on those dallies, right? Those disability adjusted life years. But they, one of the hallmarks, and if there's a hallmark, I guess, of, of neglected tropical diseases is that they're chronic diseases. Right. Mm. So you don't have the elevator speech of riding up and say, you know, in the time that we reach the 10th floor, five kids are going to die of a hookworm infection. Right. I mean, like oh, as opposed okay. to things like HIV or malaria or whatever. Right. So it's chronic debilitating diseases that afflict mostly the poorest people on the planet. Mm. Right. And so part of the issue of them being neglected had to do with attention funding, but also I see. the people themselves, right, who are most afflicted. So that's part of it. That makes a lot of sense. And I actually never knew that. So thank you for for clarifying that for me. Because, you know, when I was reading over your notes uh, that you sent me, you did mention that there was a connection when it comes to neglected tropical diseases and marginalized impoverished people. But then you put in parentheses to be clear, people who have been impoverished by others. So I do, I really do want to dig into that because yeah. it, it's almost, that almost sounds a little controversial, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that, and I'm not an expert on this by any means, but, but I think that, you know, I think that one of the aspects to this is that and there's a really good book I use for my, uh, for my global health class, right? That by, um, Joya, uh, Merkabji. She's with Partners in Health. 
mm-hmm. right? She kind of lays this out in, the, in one of the early chapters, really, in terms of kind of the saying, like, here's how I'm going to refer to resource limited, you might read as like developing countries mm-hmm. or low income countries, mm-hmm. it refers to them really throughout that book on global health delivery, impoverished countries, right? And part of that is, is, is really kind of a shout out to the both historical and really kind of ongoing processes that cause poverty. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and then, I mean, you can unpack, there's a long, obviously there's a long history with regards to colonialism and, you know, and all that kind of stuff that I think extends into, even if you look with the United States, right. You, it extends into health systems or lack of, 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 of healthcare access, but not just kind of doctor kind of stuff, but also sanitation systems, water systems, housing, and the systematic, you know, what Paul Farmer would call structural violence, right? That is, that is associated with that, that then leads to poor health outcomes. Right. So, it is not just, I think, using, thinking about, and I think it's a, a, a helpful and, and potentially kind of edgy, you know, as you're saying, like, way right. of thinking about it. Um, but rather than just saying, like, oh, here's a vulnerable population, right? As if it's like, it's on them, right? Yeah. That, that I think that the thrust of what I hear her saying is, is, is that no, it's, it's impoverished. They are, yes, you can describe a group of people or a community or a country that way, but to use it really as a verb, I guess, right. As as to say, no, they have been impoverished. Impoverished. Mm -hmm. Right. And you know, yeah, you could, you could say exploited or, you know, or whatever, that in ways that leads to uh, ultimately leads to, um, to poor health, health outcomes. And again, sometimes that has a long, uh, sometimes has a long historical um, thread to it, right? Yeah, does that makes sense. It definitely does. I mean, it, it. You could even talk about some some parts of the U.S. too. I mean, for me, I didn't have healthcare for I want to say like six months of last year mm. because I wasn't working a job, right? So it's yeah. like, where yeah. am, am I going to pay out of pocket for all of this? And then. There's a whole thing on that, you know? Yeah. And thankfully I have somebody that I could now be a dependent under uh, for healthcare, but I know a lot of people who go on without, without healthcare. Absolutely. It's, it's really like, you can see that a lot, even just in the States too. Like we don't even have to talk about low income countries there. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I want to pivot a little bit and talk about your work that you work in the classroom, but then also your work that goes beyond the classroom. So I know you said that <laughs> at the end of your class, you say, Oh, well, this was something that you just said. You said, you don't want to, you don't want to just end your class and be like, go do great things. And <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll hope that you retained maybe 20% of the information that I, yeah. that I gave you. But the fact that you do work even outside of the classroom, I want to, I want you to talk about that, what kind of work that is and what kind of immersion that gives your students. Yeah. So um, just a real quick kind of backstory on, um, so when I kind of started to kind of think about global health here at, at Wabash, 
that one of the things that really drew me in was, was not just my own interest, but also kind of starting to kind of step back. And I, I feel like my background is not in public health or global health. And so mm-hmm. like, you know, it's just kind of this awakening of, right. of, and realization and everybody who's, you know, in public health and all that is going to be like, yeah, you know, <laughs> what are you <laughs> doing? <laughs> Hello? You know? Um, yeah, but it was really kind of like a look at, like we said before, kind of these inter or multidisciplinary problems that, that impact communities, right? And, and oftentimes disproportionately communities that are impoverished, um, <laughs> is really, I, I kind of saw as I'm at a liberal arts place. This is kind of what we do, right? right. We kind of think broadly and in an interdisciplinary way um, about problems. And so this is perfect. Like every small part of a liberal arts college ought to have a public health or global health program, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that the genesis of that then became, I started to teach 2011, started to teach a global health course and then take students to Peru. I had made connections in, in, in South America and, and, uh, yeah, I mean, on, you know, on the first day of class, my kind of now mantra, you know, is really what I want to do is to disturb students in the best sense. Um, I heard at a conference one time, you know, everybody say, you know, what we want to do is kind of knock students off the rails of their lives. Mm. Right? Um, and I, I see it as kind of a, as a, as a change or, a, or an addition to a perspective. Right. And one that is an, an empathetic kind of perspective, but one that has kind of a new set of lenses or at least a wider lens or a wider perspective, right. On, on the way that they see the world. And, and I think it's, I, I kind of think of it sometimes as like, you know, you're coming up to the foothill of a, of a mountain and you think, Oh my word, like that is like this immense thing because you're standing right in front of it and you really can't see. And it's only until you get kicked to the side right. that you see like, Oh, there's actually stuff behind that. Behind that. <laughs> in fact, there may be in fact challenges that are larger than that. Right. That I couldn't see at first. And, and that, and that helps you to then, you know, there's a real, little bit of reciprocal illumination, right? I mean, it, it gives you advantage to then be able to look at the, your original position and to be able to evaluate that and think critically about that, like we we're talking about before. So, um, yeah, the, so long and short of it is kind of developed a program in global health here. Um, and so we, I'm the director of, of our global health initiative. Um, and so we uh, create opportunities for students to engage in global public health, right? Alo- alongside community partners. Um, we're really, it's really important for us to kind of sus- build sustainable partnerships with people. And that's true both kind of locally here in our town where Wabash is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where we partner with kind of local, the, the local county health department with a substance use uh, recovery place with a free clinic here in town. And we have students working there, you know, during the school year. I think one of the cool things about Wabash is that our, we have it set up so that students can do their on-campus job that's oftentimes tied to financial aid and stuff. Yeah, the work um, study. Yeah, they can do that off campus. And so guys, you know, we can have guys work in the health department and, and do their campus job, right, working there. And that's a win-win because they get experience, but also I mean, our, our health department has said, you know, time and time again, like we, we're doing things in the, for the county health department that we would not be able to do without our students. Right. Right. And so yeah. that ranges both kind of locally to regionally to even internationally. So, I mean, so for example, this summer, our, our global health initiative will have, I think it's 29 students doing summer internships. You know, like I said, 
locally, regionally, and then later this summer, I'll have two guys going and working with the team that I oversee in, and get to work with in, in Peru. So talk about, talk about the partnership that you have in Peru. Yeah. So this kind of created, started when I, um, partnership in Peru started when I um, had been to Peru. This was 2008, had been there actually with a group from our, our, the church that we were attending and for something different, right? And uh, had gotten within a week of getting back from that, had gotten invited to a, a participate in an international conference on a parasitology side of it. Ended up going to that and kind of really thinking, gosh, like maybe this is a really good opportunity um, because it was right in line with right at the same time as thinking about global health at Wabash mm -hmm. and kind of trying to develop that program. And so, yeah, I kind of very rapidly really kind of went to that meeting and then went back, you know, the very next spring in 2009, went back in the fall to, to and I was going to be on sabbatical. And so my family and I lived in Lima in the capital of uh, Peru for about three months in, in the beginning of 2010. And then it was that next year when I started to teach that course. So, so since then, we now have this. In fact, there's actually a legal entity, Global Health Association in Peru, that okay. is devoted to basically serving the needs of the Wabash GHI, right? Global Health Initiative. That's the really difficult ongoing thing in terms of sustainability. And so how do we, you know, figuring out ways and we're, we're, I was just on a Zoom call yesterday about this, you know, that, that <laughs> uh, right. And, um, trying to sort out, you know, it's hard to do student engagement, it's particularly direct student engagement internationally mm -hmm. and, and be able to sustain that and, and, and really important work of kind of sustaining the, the programming and, and human resources, um, our colleagues in, in, in Peru during the school year when we're not there. Right. right. Because I'm really had had little interest, no interest in in kind of parachuting all the stuff that goes along with that, you know, in terms of kind of there's a big moving global health now. Right. To decolonize global health and the, and the, just like the, the north south dynamic. And uh, it's difficult. And I don't think we I don't think anybody, but I don't think that we do it perfectly by any means. But the argument I've always made is to. We need to have ongoing things, right, and a presence in the communities in which we work and learn so that, yes, we can create these opportunities for students. But those that's, you know, what we want is this kind of already flowing kind of stream into which our students can come and they can learn leave. and leave. Mm -hmm. And then ideally not just leave and say, you know, child, you know, I'm not going to talk to you ever again, but really that's part of the ongoing work now is to develop the best ways that we can engage students ideally you know after they go there right yeah. to keep them engaged and because they need to keep engaged to be able to learn from the people in the community i think that that's a huge thing for me is that and it's it's hard right because of that north south right. thing that's embedded in it's embedded in students and, and ourselves as well of, hey, we're going to go down and clean this place up. You know what I mean? Like, right. No. Like really cavalier kind of. And I, I, I don't want to be too harsh. I, I, I think, yeah, it's, 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 it's difficult to. Um, it's like the intentions versus the actions and all of that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sure. 
And, and it's, you know, in our culture, in our society, in, in a privileged position, you know, in the United States, it is the air you breathe. And so you, right. And the water that you drank, the clean water, you know, that you drink, right. And, <laughs> right. right. And so, so it, it's, it does need a jolt to be able to knock somebody off of the rails of their life. Right. Which is it essentially what you said. The first, the first day of your class. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. How do these students take that when you say that? What do they, do they just look at you with like deer in the word, headlights kind of word thing? Word has spread. Yeah. <laughs> this is true. Well, I think that because they, they just kind of like see it as, oh, he's going to show us gross pictures, you know, <laughs> <laughs> disturbing. Like there's that, right? But, but, but explain actually kind of a, kind of the fuller context to it. And, and that it has to do with, it has to do with vision, right? And it has to do with perspective and you can't get that perspective without experience, whether it's direct or indirect and conversation and walking alongside of people and learning from people. And so that's a big thing, taking students there to say, you know, to say you are going to learn from people who are experts, people who are experts in poverty or the people who live in poverty, people who are experts in these kinds of things, right. Are, are people who live in those conditions, right? So that's a that's a really important part. I don't know why this reminded me of what I'm about to say, but I went to, I want to say it was either Laos or Vietnam. No, I think it was Vietnam. And we had to trek up the side of this mountain and we're all wearing like hiking boots and all of that kind of stuff. And all of the locals are wearing sandals and we're all slipping and sliding. And they're like, la, 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 you know, with- what's your problem? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, what's going on? Like, why are you having such trouble? They had like babies on the front and the back and that's exactly like the experts of just living in that area, how to even yeah. walk up the side of a mountain without falling over. Yeah. It's crazy. Wow. Yeah. I had this great, uh, this is not really global health, but this great story from when I teach a course in invertebrate zoology, right? And, and take students to, to Belize. And so we spend the week kind of at this site and we are right on the coral reef, basically the barrier reef and snorkel and stuff. And we were, we were snorkeling this kind of mangrove area and the guys said, I'm always last on the boat because I I'm, go slow because I see more, get to see more than, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> students are like chugging through, right? And so like I, the, I'm kind of hauling myself up out of the water, you know, to get into the boat. And these guys are just so much chatter, right? Because they had seen this fish that none of them had ever seen before. And they're so excited. They're guaranteed, they're, they're absolutely certain it's a brand new <laughs> brand new species. Right. And I swear that I could hear this like for minutes, you know, like as I was work, making my way up and coming close and they're just like, what do you think? Doc, 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 what do you think? You know? And, and I, I'm like, I'm not even on the boat yet. I mean, I'm just on the ladder. <laughs> right. And, and they're just like, what do you think? We think it's a new species. It's gotta be right. It looks like this, 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 I don't know. I, right. Belizean fish, not my, not my thing. And, <laughs> and, and so the first thing that I did was I just turned to the guy, this young guy who's the boat captain. I was like, so what do you think? He's like, batfish. I mean, he knew exactly what it was. <laughs> nope, no, not a new species. But the, le- <laughs> but the lesson that I talked to guys later about was you never thought to ask him. Mm, yeah. And so the question of who are the experts? 
and what makes someone an authority or an expert is a not an easy question and answer. Um, and I think it's a it's it's a more nuanced one. And I and and so I, that's something when we work in communities, we work in we have ongoing programs for for women and children in in Lima um, in a impoverished community in, in an area called Pamplona Alta, right? Um, which is basically a shanty town, slum, right? Pueblo Jovenes kind of community right on the edge of, of, of Lima within minutes of a university that we would interact with, you know, mm. help students, mm-hmm. Peruvian students do a lot of interaction with Peruvian students. Um, you know, and, and a lot of those Peruvian students we lo- later would say, thanks for, thanks for the opportunity to take us there. Like I've never been there. And this is, this is a, you know, this is a community that like you can literally stand at the university and look up and say, okay, oh yeah, like that's where we're going. Right. And and be there in a 10, 15 minute bus ride. But, but I I mean, I don't, again, I I don't fault them for that. It's an area like, you know, you don't go there. Like it's kind of can be dangerous and all that. Right. I mean, so it's like any kind of bad street in a big city here, you know, it's like there's parts of town I don't, I'm not going to go to. Right. right. And, and so I, but I think for them, and I think the cool part of this work is it's not just my own students that get their eyes opened. It's the, it's the opportunity for Peruvian students as well to interact with ours, but at the same time be engaged in work that in part because of the way that, you know, universities function and stuff that they don't necessarily get a chance to do. So there's a really cool two-way street there. Yeah. I mean, in India, that's like very, so like in Bombay, you know, there's the part of the city that like, you know, skyscrapers and all of that stuff. And then like, there's a big wall and then right across the wall or where the slums are. And it's not yeah. like anybody from the city would ever go down there. You know, it's, it, that's, yeah. it's very, very similar to, yeah. Wow. There's the exact same place in Lima. There, there is a wall and it's actually called the wall of shame oh, and, wow. and it separates. I, and yeah. in one of my lectures early on, I, I have a kind of an aerial photo of the area where we have worked mm-hmm. and it's, and it's like a satellite photo. So it's like far enough out that you can see swimming pools and, and stuff like that. Right. And right. it's only about maybe a third of a mile away. Right. By the, as the crow flies. Right. So, Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, one of the things that I do to intentionally oftentimes when the, like the very first day that we'll work in that community is that evening, we'll take, you know, just take the group out to eat at a really kind of swanky mall that overlooks the Pacific Ocean. And yeah. Virgin, it says high end stores that like, there's no way I'm walking in there. I can't afford to stop it. <laughs> you know? And, 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 and this is, you know, maybe five miles or so away from where we had spent the day and don't even necessarily say anything directly, you know, kind of just let it percolate and let the conversation Mm -hmm. exactly let it sit and then at some point you know somebody would like this is like really different than you know what we just did (laughs) let's unpack that why is that right you know and you can go from there so i know we talked about i feel like almost this whole conversation was just like light bulb moments but i remember in our earlier conversation there was one light bulb moment that you spoke about I think you guys were hiking and a student came across a snake. Oh yeah. 
Can you tell that story? Yeah, it's very yeah. interesting. Yeah, that's a great story. It's, and it's not even, this was not even Global Health Glass, actually, although it has really good global health implications. And I was, I was kind of realizing that snake bite and envenoming is now listed on the list by the WHO of, of neglected droplet diseases. Oh, wow. So it's all okay. relative. So it's yeah. All relative. What country were you guys in? We're in Peru. Yes. Peru, okay, so okay. I, yeah, it was a time when instead of going to Belize, it was kind of was at the time of like, okay, I'm going to try and put all of my field stuff under the Peruvian umbrella, right? <laughs> yeah. And see if I can just kind of develop that. And turns out for an invert course, like I'm, I'm going back to Belize now, right? Because so what we did was we were in the middle of the Peruvian Amazon, um, went to Iquitos, which is a city in the northeastern part of Peru that sits right on the Amazon River. Went, we were down river by about five hours and then up a tributary another hour at a really cool field site. Shout out to a guy named Devin Graham, who runs an organization called Project Amazonas that does a lot of good work there, but um, a lot of conservation stuff. But yeah, so we were, we're in, out in the, in the forest and we were up in a couple of different groups, just sampling in some small streams. And so we were looking for invertebrates and, you know, and all that stuff. Right. You know, all of a sudden, you know, a group of guys come running up and they have this bag. We had these, we had these bags that we would just put stuff in and, and, you know, they come running up and they're, they're like, so take a look at this snake, you know, look at this. What is this? You know, and I'm looking in, I'm like, it looks like some kind of viper, but I'm not exactly sure, you know, I learned later on, you know, as, as this tends to go, right, with student immersion trips, right, the story yeah. unfold later on, you know, you learn more and more, <laughs> although probably not all, which is, which is probably a good thing. But uh, yeah, it turned out that a student, these guys were out sampling and the guy was standing on the tail end of a fertilance, one of the most poisonous snakes in the rainforest. Other guys in the group were like, dude, you're on a snake, you know? <laughs> and and he thought they were kidding, you know, and, and then they're like, no, you know, and glance down and there's this, you know, trying to get away. So he jumped away, thing took off. And of course, then little boy mode set in and they like ran this thing down and chased <laughs> it, right, and caught it. And that's how it ended up in the bag. So we ended up taking it back oh to the gosh. field, you know, uh, take it back to the, to the field station. Because I had said, we'll just talk to one of the Peruvian guides back there. And I can remember... The light bulb part is, I can remember ending there. The guy had taken it out of the bag, you know, and was, and was, I have this great picture. The, the, the holding this, this, this fur lens. And we're just looking at it. And the student, not the student who was standing on it, but a different guy was, was talking to the Peruvian guide about this. And he just, the student said, so, you know, of course, like you have anti-venom here, just kind of in an assuming kind of way. Right? Matter of fact oh, yeah, kind yeah, of way. Matter of fact way, right? It's like, you have anti-venom here, you know? And the, and the Peruvian guy was just like, no, like, no, you know, just matter of fact, as matter of fact, yeah. right? As the question was, was, was kind of a little bit of like, no, we don't. And the look the realization of that, the, the, in, in a lot of ways, like the penetration of that knowledge into that kid's like heart and mind and soul, <laughs> like you could literally see, you know, his face go from like expectation to just like, wow, you know, and this the like, blood like, just it, rushes it, out of his face. Yeah. Well, his wasn't the only one. right? Kind of, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, the realization of, access, as I think about it in, from through the lens of global health, right, 
the issue of healthcare access and emergency kind of care, right? As well as kind of like present, present risks, present day kind of real life risks that people who live in, in communities face, um, as well as kind of services, right? Like part of the reason oftentimes that remote communities don't have that is because they don't have the, you know, the stable electricity or their level of refrigeration or whatever, right? Um, and to be able to kind of maintain that stuff. But plus the frequency right. is really low, right? So yeah, that was a really, that was a great one. Yeah. I think the, for, for me, the other one, just quickly, the, the, the other, one of the other light bulb ones is for me, when I take students to that community in Lima, for example, or this, or we also work in the mountains in a city called Wanuko, have association with a university there, um, and, and a rain, another rainforest community called Tingo Maria, um, and other kind of university connection there. I think the first time that students encounter areas of pretty extreme, pretty steep poverty, mm. like more than certainly deeper than, than they would experience even the, even in kind of probably the poorest parts of the United States. But, um, and, and, you know, you know, this, you know, I've heard you talk about this, you know, um, in India and other places, right. That it kind of goes back to that. We were saying like, in some sense, the, mm, implicit kind of assumption that, oh, we're going to come down and like, we're going to solve this problem, yeah you know, and we oftentimes would go and to this one university in, in one part of Lima and would pick up Peruvian students and we're, we're driving this big old, old school bus, you know, kind of mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. up winding up these, these roads and you go from basically suburb, right. In, in Lima up the, up the hill and, the, the level of poverty gets steeper, right? Kind of, kind of like the hill. And there's lots of chit chat. Students are really not paying attention to kind of what's out beside the bus. But as you wind up, I think one of the light bulb things for me is like you can hear the level of chit chat go down. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and then I, you know, you kind of glance back, and now everybody's sitting there quietly looking out the window, and the gravity and the magnitude i think of the problem right of the conditions in a community that really doesn't have sanitation services doesn't have kind of stable water system right where that is to say the community where we're headed right to to, to work and interact and to learn from people mm -hmm. that and and guys can stand on the edge of a little bit of a valley, you know, in this just kind of hilly part of this community. And those conditions are basically as far as they can see. Right. And it's a pendulum. You know, they're riding this pendulum. And when they started, they were like, we're riding high. Clean it up. This is not going to be a problem. <laughs> right? Yeah, like, yeah. To, you know, that bus trip kind of like takes them to where they're scraping by, you know, like almost scraping at the bottom, you know, of, of the, of that swing. And I think the, the nuance and of the, for me, kind of like the joy of teaching in that environment and that situation. And the, and I think the, the really kind of awesome aspect of teaching in these kind of immersive kind of experiences is to then, like Leslie said, you know, I think really well, let that sit. Mm -hmm. And, and then to kind of back it off and say, okay, 
it's not that nothing can be done here. And so let's first learn like what the people here say. Right. Right. And what is being done and what do they want to do and, and to really kind of lead with your ears. Right. And, and to listen, um, because we can learn a lot for sure. Um, and we can't make assumptions about what is the best thing necessarily for them. We can certainly come with a lot of ideas that are grounded in evidence and from stuff done all over the world. Right. Um, but that, that kind of experience I think is, is meant to be kind of both disturbing and, and eye opening for the students, but they can then take that new position and, and, and look at challenges in a different way. Right. Mm -hmm. And realize that things are actually multidisciplinary. All right. And I think you answered this last question, but what, after taking a course like yours and like going on a trip to Peru or Belize or what do you, what do you hope your students come away with? Like what, what is the, what is the goal for you? Mm. Yeah, I think that that goal, I think one of those goals is just what we're talking about, right, is is to kind of widen their perspective, to mm -hmm. widen their gaze, right, to to have them look at these not just not not just the breadth, but also the depth of the problems um and the level of kind of intersection. And so, you know, I oftentimes do kind of admissions events and, you know, and stuff like that, right, cuz the college will try and you can do global health, you know, at, at Wabak College and, you know, all that stuff, and which is true. And, yeah. uh, and, and I, I do that a lot. But I think one of the things I oftentimes have to do is disabuse people and prospective students and even current students and faculty that global health is all about. It's just for those kids who want to do pre-health, mm. right? Because, you know, we know from public health stuff that, you know, only – 20% of health outcomes are driven by things that you would talk about in your doctor's office, right? 80% are driven by other kinds of things, right? Social determinants of health, right, right. environmental mm -hmm. and commercial determinants of health and all those other things and the social side. And so I'm very, you know, out front with students, you know, to say there is not a student on this campus who could not come under our umbrella, right? There is not a student on this campus who could not do things that would benefit and, and contribute to the work of, of global public health, right? That does not mean that you have to jump ship and become a biology person. Right. No. Because we need people who are in social sciences. And obviously so much of global health is political policy, you know, is, is politics and economics and, and sociology and all that. But it's also theater and the arts, right? Yeah. And music and, and, I need guys who are, who are theater majors. You know, a couple of years ago, I had a guy who's a theater major and, and he wrote a one act play that was really getting at healthcare access. And wow. for me, that is like, that is awesome. That is right? so like, cool. that is perfect. Right. That's, that's, that's what I want you to do. Right. Um, and, and so, yeah. So what I want them to come away from global health class, right? Um, what do I want them to come away with? I want them to understand things are really complex and it takes its partnership, right? We're always talking about this, that, and, and everyone has something to contribute um, to, to, to this thing. And to some level, everybody kind of comes in and you, you know, you need to be kind of your own local world expert, right? On this particular thing. 
because it, it takes that level of kind of complicated network and a collaborative network, right, to be able to get those to get those things done. So I think I want them to come away with the sense of the challenges, but also that there are solutions um, that can be made, but it takes a lot of hard work, but it also takes empathy. Right. Um, and so part of the immersive stuff is to kind of build them their, their empathy and you're not empathetic or not, you know, <laughs> we, we talk about it more in terms of, you know, you need to kind of learn to flex those muscles. And just like you would go to the gym and train and build those muscles, like we have to do that with empathy as well. Uh, so. Yeah, I absolutely love what you said about how some, I feel like some students think like, oh, it's global health. Like I would need to have like a biology major or, you know, something within the sciences. And, you know, from more and more conversations that I've been having you know, storytelling is huge. So film and the arts and theater and podcast, engineering, you know, absolutely, it's, it's, it's so multidisciplinary that I think that a lot of times people, you know, they narrow themselves down. I mean, even with myself, I, there, there are times where I'm like, well, I have a global health podcast, but I don't have a global health background. You know what I'm saying? Yep. And then I'd be like, am I, I got it? is this really like, can I do this? And I can do this, you know? Yeah, you're doing it. Yeah, that's awesome. I just, I'm thankful that you said that. So thank you for that. Yeah, no, I, I think, I, I mean, I, the, one of the thing, astounding things to me is that most people that you meet in kind of local public health, so you go to the county health department and all that. I mean, most people who are working in the public health space do not have backgrounds in public health, mm, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I think in a lot of ways, not, it's not to say that, you know, no one needs background. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? We, we clearly need, you know, people who have expertise. We need the scientists. <laughs> we need epidemiologists. And yes. People who are good with kind of public health theory and, and, you know, and all that, right? We need all that. Absolutely. But I mean, the, on the ground reality is there's a lot of people who work in that space who at the kind of local state national level who that's not their background, right. But they're bringing their backgrounds and their experiences to, to the fight. Right. So, yeah. um, yeah. So it's cool. I think. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Eric, for this awesome conversation. I learned so much. I'm just oh, gosh. Yeah. Thanks so much uh, for the opportunity and, and so, I, and I, I, I hope that your this continues to, you know, it looks like kind of enjoying some, cool success and podcasts and building folks and, and building kind of a community. So yeah, um, yeah I appreciate, I appreciate you doing that and, and, and helping me too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to learn more about today's topic and guest, head over to the show notes linked in the description of this episode. There you can get access to resources, links, and ways you can get involved in the pursuit for global health. And if you love this episode, don't forget to write me a review on Apple Podcasts and rate the podcast on Spotify. It helps me get in front of more people just like you and continues to elevate the causes we are so passionate about. I'll see you in the next one.